in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co-hosts, Mr. Dustin Melbarge from Deep in the Heart, Texas. How you doing, sir? Good evening. Rudy Gobert is a timber wolf. Yeah, it's weird. I'm, I'm, it never works out for anybody, though. I mean, uh, that, that's the kiss of death. So uh, It's yeah. weird. It's not Sacramento. It it's weirder than Seattle not having a team. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. It's not full Sacramento. It's not full Sacramento. It's not Miami Dolphins. It's Yeah, well, I mean, it's I, I could we could talk NBA for another two hours, but that's just what's on my mind. On my birthday that trade came across. On my own birthday, I lost my favorite player on my favorite team. Ouch. Oh, that's that's harsh. Yeah, and that to boot, it's uh, probably it's probably a million degrees in Texas in July. Yeah, but I always talk about how hot it is. I wanted to bring up something that wasn't the triple-digit temperatures. So I, I was going to contrast that from where it's hot to where it's not. Mr. Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. How you doing, sir? Oh, I'm good. Uh, we're we're all the way up to 70 degrees today. So, oh, I mean, yeah. it's... Uh, <laughs> we had a couple of days. It's in paradise, you know? Don't worry. It's a, it's a dry heat, right, Dustin? Sure. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> whatever works. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, today, let's let's break the ice here a little bit. What is a movie that most sucks you in when it aired on TV? Like you might own the movie, and for no good reason, you're now stuck watching cable television with with TV ads and the whole shebang, uh, turning a regular movie into a four hour endeavor. What movie will do you love so much that it'll it'll hook you like this, Brian? The one that always seems to get me, and it's always on TNT, is The Fugitive. Like I'll, yeah. it's like uh, I guess I'm watching TNT for the next hour and a half. Like it doesn't even matter where it is in the movie. And then more likely than not, what'll end up happening is I'll watch it from whatever point in time it aired to the end, and then I will find it whether it's digital or CD or whatever, and I'll you know pop it in and then watch it in its entirety because that's where I am now. TNT is tricky. They can get you after like a or like uh, like if they get you around a basketball game. Yep. Then they got you for a whole movie too, and then Ted Turner has your whole weekend. Yeah. Uh, and especially yeah, if they're doing, I I remember growing up, and I would just be crossing my fingers, praying, can't wait for the 007 Days of Christmas. Uh, I just, I mean, I, it didn't even matter what Bond movies were playing. I just leave it on TBS or whatever that was on, and yeah. and that that's it. That that was all I watched from December like what 15th through the 22nd 15 days of 007 it was it was great dustin how about you what's the movie that just will hook you in maybe my favorite of the ones that could hook me in is con air Ooh, with nicholas cage oh, yeah. john malkovich i i had raising arizona early on mm. as like a, a thing why growing up i like nick cage and i know that he gets some flack for his movie choices and his performances but uh, I I was in like a nice little bubble of liking Nick Cage's stuff before stuff like Bangkok Dangerous came out. 
So for me, it's Con Air. That is a good movie. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. So I, I don't, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard it through the grapevine that the reason he had that string of terrible movies there for a while is he got in so much debt from buying European castles that he basically had to like greenlight every project that came across his desk, Netflix style, to get out of. Let's it. hope it's true. And, and and what ended up happening is now he's back. I guess he's flush again. And that's why he's like completely slaying it the last two years with these movies because he can do his own projects again. As for me, the the movie that will just suck me in is one that we just did. You said TNT Fry, and uh, they they are they are the culprits for me as well. The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, mm-hmm. they do. They just, do play Shawshank just a lot. One or two lines of Morgan Freeman's narration. You could even just and not even see the screen. You just kind of start, slowly start to move your way towards the screen, and then you're kind of like, "Well, this seat looks pretty comfortable." And then, and then, then, then you're you don't even you could be it could happen right before commercial break. I'll go to the post office stuck. tomorrow. I'll I'll, exactly. I'll give TNT that cred. I mean they they have kept up with a good stable pool of very watchable movies for a very long time. That combined with the you know their basketball programming and whatnot really does make them a must-have channel. <laughs> I, I get done though, and I'm sitting there going like, I own this movie. Why am I watching Why it on am TV? I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Can we send this episode in like an email to TNT, being like, hey, partnership? <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. Our numbers are up, Ted. Come on, come 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 sponsor the show. TNT RMR. I mean, the the letters are so close. That's right. UBT the All 80s Movies we'll podcast is sponsoring us. So uh, now. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. There you go. Uh, what's the last movie you saw, Dustin? 13 with a young Evan Rachel Wood, Nikki Reed, and then uh, Holly Hunter plays the mom in a coming of age tale that I think I'm in this, this little era, right? Not this little 2000 to 2008, kind of in that movie watching era right now. And so I think that one was either 2001 or 2003, but it's great. Little coming of age story, stressors of being a young teenage girl. Very cool movie. Yeah. There's a lot of movies that have 13 in the title. You can go on a whole run of those. You could. The 13th floor, Friday the 13th. 13 going on 30s. I think there's like a cap it all off. <laughs> yeah. Thor teen, love and thunder. <laughs> All right, Fry, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? Uh, it's earlier today, I watched The Untouchables, which is probably another movie I would stop on TNT and watch if it <laughs> came on. Uh, the last movie I saw was The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, which was panned at the time, but I'm not going to lie. I had a good time. I think that's uh, that's one I've caught in pieces on TV only. I don't know the full film. It's absurd. As long as you don't go in expecting uh, you know, filet mignon, sometimes you just want a grilled cheese sandwich and that's okay. It's okay. Today's movie is what, Dustin? Collateral, 2004. All right. Collateral stars Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx, Jada Pickett-Smith, and Mark Ruffalo. It's, it comes out in the year 2004. It has a budget of $65 million, and it grosses $101 million. It places a 23rd in the box office that year, coming in just behind The Aviator and ahead of Million Dollar Baby. You need to pick me up. Avoid that last one that I mentioned there. So Shrek 2. Uh, is the number one movie from 2004. IMDb gives Collateral a 7.5. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like it a fair bit more at 86%. The audience score is right about there as well at 84%. It is nominated for two Academy Awards for Best uh, Supporting Actor to Jamie Jamie Foxx and Best Film Editing. Uh, Golden Globes also gave Jamie Foxx a Best Supporting Actor nomination. 
Uh, it won the BAFTA for Best Cinematography, and it took five other nominations away, so the BAFTAs gave it quite a bit of attention. And the AFI's Top 10 of 2004, so this is just not not any of the 100 greatest of all times, but just the Top 10 of 2004, which there's no ranking. They just named 10 movies uh, to avoid controversy. Dustin, this is your dealer's choice. I'm going to take it you've seen this before. That's right. I picked this one, and I was happy to revisit it. I had watched this in 2005 and 2006 we had bought the dvd so we were um watching this just a you know bunch of guys we'd hang out every weekend uh we're we're putting two xboxes together and playing halo or halo 2 and we're eating fast food and we're drinking generic mountain dew and the generic dr pepper and this was one of the movies that we kind of had on rotation where we'd have it on all the time, even if we weren't sitting down and watching it. Um, so I'd seen it a bunch, uh, but it was uh, a gift to be able to, 15 years later, come back and say, like, let's look at this critically. Because I, I had seen it a lot, but to, to, to sit down and focus on it for real um, was a real treat. You could be honest, you were drinking Zimas. Oh, man, I pounded two Zimas in a row. Picture this, to try to impress a girl... But yes. this was a <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry, they were not Zimas; uh, they were Smirnoff ices. Uh, but uh, no, this was before I uh, took the turn into alcohol. We were just playing video games and drinking soda. <laughs> no Zimas at the time. Brian, this seems like this seems like it's going to be up your alley. I'm taking it. You've seen this one as well. Uh, yes, I have this movie. I, I actually can't tell you whether or not I saw this in theaters or not. I I honestly don't remember um, if if this was a theater experience for me. Uh, no, it was a super enjoyable movie, uh, and I haven't watched it probably in 10 years, so I'm glad it came back around again. Yeah, I I definitely saw this when it hit the DVD stores, um, the rental stores. Um, I saw Ray, and I was – which Ray comes out just a little after this. I saw Ray in the theaters, and um, even though Collateral came out before Ray that same year, I, I after I saw Ray, I was like, wow, Jamie Foxx. Didn't know you had that in you. Like, what else have you got here? And so I, I picked up Collateral. And, um, you know, it, it was fine. It went down. I was expecting a little more intensity somehow to it than that. And it it faded from memory. And I didn't come back to it at all until it got picked again for the show. So a lot of it had faded from my memory. So I was certainly due for a refreshing. And I gave it a much closer look as well. And I will say, it's a movie that upon further evaluation, there's substance there. That, you know, a typical kind of all-in-one-night action movie would not have. So I'm going to give it some credit over perhaps what its synopsis alone would imply that it is. I, I completely agree that it is upon a second watch, whether it's, you know, sometimes with a show we watch it twice, maybe even three times. Uh, I only had one rewatch because I had seen it so many times, but even in just one, you pick up on things. Uh, might I say it's more enjoyable if you already know what's going on? Maybe. I don't know if that's ever fair to say. I like to try to put myself in the shoes of someone that's that's never watched it. And like what surprises um, are supposed, what traps are set for the new watcher. But uh, yeah, I think coming back to it, it's still, uh, it still had uh, plenty to offer, whether it's smaller details or uh, thanks to being around guys like you, picking up on the decisions to change focus or, you know, the top down camera scenes of L.A., things that like I hadn't picked up uh, before being on a movie podcast. Yeah, it's not a popcorn movie. It's not like um, 
like I said, uh, there's there's craft in there, and that that's something I did not pick up on as much. And perhaps it's just me, like you said, um, maybe I've grown to appreciate movies in a at more levels. Because we've done several Tom Cruise movies uh, in the podcast history, I, I've really got to give hats off to him. I forget sometimes just the breadth of movies he's been in, and and the quality really that that most of them have. Like he has very few mummies in his closet. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually. He's not in the Mummy, is he? He's no, he's got. He was in the fourth. Yeah. Was it the fourth Mummy? Movie? Oh no, was he in that one? Like yeah, like the the Monsters yeah, Universe, it was, it was, like like the, the, like the China, like yeah. like where they go to China. No, I'm sorry, fifth Mummy Mummy movie. They go bad after a point. There's another they get one. Bad. Un- I think another one without Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Unrelated. Oh. God. Yeah, like, and it's pretty. Yeah. How recent are we looking at? Four years on that. 2017. Okay. Probably? Yeah. 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 Five yeah, years. where it was sort of like uh, I, th- I think you had the Mummy, and I know that we had a cool re-envisioning of like the Invisible Man, but this was part of like a supposed revamp of the Monsters universe um, that I don't think ever really panned out. No, I mean it, that, and I mean he he had a couple in there that were questionable, the, the night and days of the world, but no, I think by by and large he's got a very quality. I agree. Uh, I agree. I actually so much so. The Night and Day is Cameron Diaz in it, correct? Yes. So yes. much so that I was like, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, take me there. I I, I went to theaters to see it. Didn't I was think. kind of excited to see that as well. Mm-hmm. And I was in there. It's not their faults, by the way. I don't think it's the actor's faults, either one of them. Oh, I don't either. Uh, but but it is sandwiched by two of my favorite Tom Cruise movies in Valkyrie and Ghost Protocol. So, oh, yeah. uh, both of those were both of those were fantastic. So I was like, yeah, all right, you get that one. That's That's fine. You can toss me a curveball every once in a while. And the other thing, the other compliment I'll give Tom is so many actors have hit this point with me personally where they've done too many movies in a year, two years, three years. They get really popular. They put them in everything. And then I get burnt out. Tom Cruise really does pace himself. And I also appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. We're not inundated with Tom Cruise flicks. Yeah, and we right. will be spoiling this movie as we go ahead. So if you have not seen Collateral, come back and we will spoil this movie after this. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Collateral since 2004, we're going to refresh people's memories. Five stops, five hits for ice-veined assassin Vincent, just landed in L.A. and looking to make his dirty work quick. So he hires a cabbie for the night. Max. Six bills do the convincing and Max agrees to take Vincent around L.A. The first hit results in the mark falling onto Max's cab, nearly crushing the vehicle. But the ensuing argument 
turns into a forced agreement to ferry the killer around town. Vincent dispatches the man in the penthouse and also guns down two criminals before they are off to seek the third target at a jazz club. Arriving at the scene of the first victim is narcotics detective Ray Fanning, whose arc fills us in on Vincent's mission to eliminate key witnesses in an upcoming federal trial. In a packed club, Vincent saves Max from getting shot, takes out target number four, and pressures Max to keep moving. Moved by their philosophical discussions ongoing throughout the night, Max has finally had enough and intentionally crashes his cab. Vincent escapes, but Max realizes from the leftover intel that the last target is a prosecutor he had met earlier in the day and rushes to her aid, beginning in a high-rise and culminating on the MTA, where a quick hunt results in a mortal wound for Vincent and leads Max and Annie to exit the train and recover as a new dawn approaches. Does it, though? Just want to say, I'm just Jess and I had this conversation when we watched it together this last time. She was like, he needs to double tap, and he goes through his whole monologue about the you know passenger or person dies on the subway and nobody notices. I was like, turn around, that body's gone. Oh yeah, yeah. Like there's the is is it a choice to leave it as a question to the audience? I wouldn't go so far. I think you I have. Think he's dead. I think you have, but I do like that. Uh, you said your wife raised that question. I don't know. <laughs> my my wife's favorite zombie land rule that she has now spread to every <laughs> facet of our movie and television watching is rule two double tap. Well, Cruz does that. Like, he shoots people is, in the chest twice and then once in the oh, head. Hundred percent, and she's like, "That is correct." But I'm saying, who didn't do that? Jamie Fox. Right. So, no. He also didn't have any ammo left, though. If you notice the slot, if you notice this. He could have. He could have picked up Tom's gun. He could have put up. Uh, he no, he could have picked up. No, Tom's you have gun. to remember, and we're jumping right to the end of the movie. Uh, Vincent was out of ammo too. They both were. Yeah, but he was in the process of reloading when he realized he'd been no, shot. No, he, he's reaching. He, he drops that. He drops mag. that. This mag. got heated fast. This got heated fast. He's reaching for his replacement mags that he typically keeps around his hip, and he realized they're not there. He is out of bullets at the end of the movie. Wow, deep Be- dive, deep because discussion. He goes to oh, because he has the he has the security guards gun at that point. He, he's he's at a point. Yeah, uh, yeah, where they both don't have. The only reason I think that uh, Max doesn't have any ammo left is the. Slide is stuck back um, on that way. No, I think you're right. I think they both. I think they both emptied. But uh, Max had Vincent's gun. Vincent had the dead security guard's gun. Yeah, it is fun to, to immediately jump to the, to the end of the movie and be training. like, "Is he dead?" <laughs> hey, we already ruined it, man. Just deal. Like the, the listeners, we already ruined it for you. We gave you a fast forward <laughs> of the first, you know, whatever hour and thirty five minutes of the movie. We're going right yeah. at it. Yep, yep, from zero to a hundred. <laughs> so um, it's interesting, though, w- from the get-go, why Max? You know, why does he? Why does Vincent need Max to have a cab driver drive him around town? I, you know, I, I found myself troubled by that the first time I watched this movie. And you know, um, he says you're good at what you do, and you know the city and stuff. But I, I did find myself wondering. It seems like it's an inevitable added mess. He talks about drawing attention. And inevitably, this is attention, and that he's he's drawing more people in. Why doesn't Tom Cruise rent a car? I'm just going to ask it right away. Uh, we don't know why, but we do know that this is part of his mo. 
the movie insinuates that he has done this before in San Francisco. Uh, three deaths along with then the death of another cab driver through um, whether that's from Ray Fanning's arc where we learn that or, or somewhere along the lines we learn that this has happened before. This is just part of how he operates. And he almost doesn't. If you remember, Max is kind of still a little starstruck from his meeting with Annie when Vincent walks up to his cab and he's only seconds away from walking to the next one. So it, it's not even special about picking Max. He was just the cab that was closest. I, I, I like to think that as a professional hitman, choosing a cab is just adds to the ambiguity of what you're doing because you've got, you know, the fingerprints of God knows how many people in the back of that car, hair samples, whatever. I, I would think it would be nearly impossible to track down any physical evidence based on using a cab. Oh, I, that's fair. But I mean, I would think you'd have your summer intern who you hired with your giant commission just to be your driver is what I'm getting at. There is a world behind, uh, you know, where Vincent comes from that is really not explored at all. But yeah, your initial question, like, why didn't he just rent a car? Well, he could have. Then it's not a movie. But we we know that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, it it is kind of a kind of a hostage situation. Not. I mean, it's uh, he he's placed in a position where he can't get out of and it only raises the stakes more he becomes more and more sucked in and it's kind of like the more you move the more it it, it takes you like quicksand and, you know it gets really at hand for him by the time vincent says oh, let's go see your mother and he doesn't want him to know where she is and doesn't want him to go in and that becomes even more leverage over him and it's it's interesting to see the harder and harder Vin uh, max wants to get out of this the more and more vincent sticks to him so do you, do you guys think that that max gets the girl in the end yes saving okay. her life is do a very think, good like you know second impression <laughs> do, do you th do you think that 18 odd years later she probably has him like smacking customers accidentally on television i think he has his own limo service for one i think i think he has the financial uh get up to go i think he has the uh the guts after this night after his life has been threatened, I think he has it in him because we do under. I think that's the one. I think that's probably my favorite thing upon returning to this. Max's transformation. He he can't get his life going. Like he can't he can't start this cab cab business. He's been thinking about it for eleven years that he's been driving cabs and he's kind of kicking around. He's probably totally capable of doing it. If you can make a cab in L.A. look as nice as he's done and treat people and be as charismatic as he is and knows the driving routes, there's absolutely no reason short of purchasing a vehicle um that that would stop him and it's it's himself who's stopping himself from doing this oh i 100 percent agree with you and i think that's one of the things i like about max's character because I, I see a lot of myself in that i mean you start doing something it works out well you're good at it it's easy to get like if it's not your end goal and you have something else like that's how they get that that's that's 100 accurate in terms of what happens in real life yeah, he's he's become comfortable driving this cab, which he says to two different people, the two important fares of the movie, Annie and Vincent, that and the two most important fares of the rest of his life. <laughs> Drew, yeah, um, that this is temporary, and uh, Annie maybe believes him, but uh, Vincent sees right through him, especially once he learns how long he's been doing it, 
And I think he gives him a really early barb, maybe 20 or 25 minutes in. Uh, Vincent asks Max, uh, you know, like, why do you drive a cab or something like that? Or what, what's, what's your dream? What, what are you interested in? And Ma- Max responds to Vincent, I don't want to talk about it. I, I, sorry, I, I don't want to talk about it. And um, Vincent has already kind of placed who this guy is. And he says, "Oh yeah, you're you're more of a you're more of a can-do guy. You you do more than talk about it." And he's and this was something I would have missed as a 18-year-old is that he's he's just he's calling him out, being like, "That's not who you are. I'm lying. To, you know, I, this is clearly trying to get at you because he knows that he's not a can-do guy." Yeah, yeah, totally. it's interesting to see how Max goes from just being like. I here's my keys to my car. I I'll see you later, which is honestly a pretty. <laughs> I might find myself making a similar deal. <laughs> like I would have said the same thing, but um, it's interesting how he becomes, you know, very disapproving of what Vincent's doing. Like how he had this conversation about jazz and just really hit it off. How charismatic he was, and then bam, dead. And he realizes he's stuck in a situation where he himself will probably be dead. He has no reason after this night, all the fairs are completed. Their clock is ticking against you before he eliminates you. And that urgency is what creates Max to you know, really gain his spine. Once, once he sees that his mother is pulled into this, he steals the briefcase with the targets and then goes and throws it over the freeway. And quite honestly, you're thinking Vincent's going to like kill him right then and there, but uh, Vincent keeps him alive long enough to try and correct his own mistake on his behalf, which was safer for Vincent to do. But it is it is interesting to watch this backbone go up because it's desperation. It's when your back's against the wall. People are really great at adapting, but they only really adapt when they absolutely have to. And that's just that that's what this pressure pot of a situation is doing for for Max. It's making him adapt for basically for his life. Russell, I don't think you're incorrect. I think it's it's also more than backed into a corner must act to get out. I think and I think you would agree that there there's also the purposeful conversation of changing who they are in front of the audience's eyes of of this job started off was it was what it was going to be. And throughout the night, the particular things that have happened with these with these two this night could could change you know changes them for who they end up being. Which I know that you you really liked seeing Max's transformation. I do want to ask this question: Do you think any time during the movie that we get to a point where Vincent would not kill Max at the end of the night? No. You think you think he's dead? I think he's toast. He's been super charming with everybody else he's been on, and the fanning kind of element confirms that this is how he operates like you said this is just this is how he does things um so no even the first time i watched it i in fact i think the first time i watched it that was what was sitting there pulling me through the most was like how's he gonna get out of this because he himself will be eliminated in this and 700 dollars is not nearly enough to have roped <laughs> to have roped you into this uh to this mess of like $700, you'll be my driver all night long, uh, which sounds pretty good probably initially, but at some point you're just like, oh man, I kicked myself. Like you said, he almost passed up on the cab. He almost missed the fare. <laughs> he didn't have to accept the $700, I'll be your driver all night long deal either. So it was twice that he could have gotten out of it. 
I thought it was more of that dark irony thing. To be honest with you, Vincent is a character we've seen before. The sociopath that like just doesn't, you know, he's this, he's this cold, calculated killer. We've seen this villain before, but it's Max that makes it interesting. So why does he have to be a sociopath? I know he brings up that, you know, that Max thinks he's a sociopath. Why can't he just be someone who's okay with I'm actually people? leaning. Like that doesn't automatically. I, I'm thinking I the not, same I'm way not, as you are, Brian. I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know if that term is appropriate or not. But he clearly does not operate to the similar moral code as most of society or the law. I, I, I get you there, but I, I'm just saying that I think a lot of people, especially ex-operators, have you know you have to come up with a different different philosophy when you do this as a profession, and that doesn't automatically lead to you being a sociopath, you may not have the same value for human life that the next person does. But I I never got the feeling that Vincent was a sociopath because if he was, I think there would have been a whole lot more bondage put on Max and a whole lot less life lessons. And like, why does he bother talking to him when he can just scare the crap out of him, make him drive him around and then off him? No, he wants to try to fix him in the head say like you have a wrong philosophy in life i don't think you make i think he's just this this antithesis to max but has that same quality that max does that makes him want to better this experience that they're having i i I think that they have a lot of the same characteristics it's just their personalities are very different and that's where this whole dichotomy piece makes for such a compelling movie i don't know and and i'd say i'm i'm 60 40 on whether or not max uh gets uh he lets max live at the end really you know i i think and i'm i'm definitely leaning towards what brian's saying here i think you said a couple things that russell would agree with and then then some things that he that go against like the sociopath thing uh, I I think that with with some of the the things that Vincent brings up, could it be all a part of a charismatic deception to have Max believe that he's really interested in what he has to say, and and because if that's the case, then you can say that uh, you know he, all of his questions about the future are just off putting until the end of the night. Uh, get me back to the airport. Before I I kill you, I I am more along the lines that like, with what particularly went down that night, that the second half of the movie we have the potential here that Max survives. Now, some of Vincent's questions he asks, "Are you going to call her?" Talking about Annie, because he sees the business card. The, the, but he, he's, she's mm-hmm. on his kill list, though. Well, I'm. I don't think he saw the card in like that way because he had already mentioned earlier. He's like, "Hey, did you get her phone number?" Remember, they have a conversation about his previous fare and everything. So, I don't think he necessarily saw the card in terms of being like, "Oh, that's the name on my." There's also the possibility that he doesn't have those last two names yet because those, like, he was only looking at the names as they were coming across. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what the plans were, bit based on the tablet he was looking at and what gets lost. Well, real quick though, sorry, just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just for spitting, spitting this out here. Um, doesn't Max pick Vincent up outside of the law office? I, I, I guess I just assumed he was doing reconnaissance on her. Yeah, he does. You know, because he hasn't, he hasn't driven off from having dropped Annie off when he beats Vincent. I wonder how close that that is because we see Vincent arriving at an airport. And he gets his bag of intel from Jason Statham, airport man. 
And so then he has to make it Who from transported airport. it to him. Yeah. Did he take the MTA to that station underneath the uh, the skyscraper? Because I'm not exactly sure why he's yeah, there. That could have been a thing too. Be, because we don't. You would think that if there were another cab involved or another way of transportation involved, he might have used that one. I guess I don't think it was a given that Max doesn't survive the night, based on the event of this particular night. Had it sure. gone without a hitch, had the first hit not resulted in a body. Uh, smashing into the top of the cab. I think it goes exactly as Vincent plans, and in the end, Max is dead. He's off. Um, but well, yeah, well, think- why kill? Why kill Max if Max never knows he's a killer? Though, if he just took him to a bunch of places, and all Max knows is this guy closed some real estate you deals. You have to and- clean up your trail, though. Like when it's all said and done, and you, and- know, you can't just. You know, I don't think go off he of his needs word to. saying I won't turn you in. You I would know? agree. I, mean, I don't think him. he absolutely has to. It's just mentioned to us in some of the intel from either the FBI guy. No, it was uh, in Fanning's conversation with his other detective saying that like this is a lot like that thing ha- that happened in San Francisco, where three deaths in a night result, and then in the end, there's a, a the, the cab the cab driver kills himself, or it's made to look like that. Now, we don't know for certain that that's, that's exactly what happened uh, and that it was Vincent Handiwork in the other described case, but I'm thinking that's given to us so that you believe that that's the closest pattern. Vincent's so controlled of what he's doing. He seems like such a pro. I feel like his interactions with uh, Max feel sloppy. I guess maybe it's his jazz like tendency to want to improvise, but I mean, he picks... I think he sticks with Max, uh, perhaps testing him as a driver even beforehand and testing him with the money stuff and just seeing how he reacts. I think I think Vincent has at least selected him before he gets into things with him because I believe he thinks he can control him. And he can at first. But as Max's character evolves, he becomes somebody who won't be controlled by by Vincent. You know, Vincent's a wolf, Max is a sheep, but later on, that wolf-like tendency was within Max and it comes out. I mean, turns out, you know, it took the fact that he knew the person that Vincent was going after and he, you know, was quite infatuated with her and, you know, you know, she basically told him to call her and stuff like that. So, you know, he's seen the destruction and he 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 has the guilt on him that he has to do something. You know, like, I can't live with myself to not do something. And furthermore, I've been pushed to this new limit of I have all these things that I didn't think that I could do. I didn't think I could go into a room full of gangsters at gunpoint and negotiate them to give me a list of people to be killed and then go back into the car. He's He's come out of this night different. No, that's interesting. He's about to get handcuffed because there's still the body in the trunk. And that's when every choice after that is extremely dangerous and hard to do for a normal person. Uh, but flings the cop over his shoulder, uh, takes the pistol. I find, and don't you find that there's, there's a, uh, a mixture of mimicking Vincent's words and actions and then also like the fire rising inside of himself, like being able to do these things. And then running to the skyscraper calling Annie with just the right information. He jacks that dude's cell phone. Uh, like, and points the gun at him, by the way. Like, like all, all these things, 
are like result in a uh, an action scene at the end of the movie that I actually wasn't really expecting that it was it's almost it, it the tone is like slightly different in like survival game of these these actors because everybody else that's going to get off in this movie is just a target that you don't really know much about so um it's interesting uh we covered a movie that you were on Dustin earlier this er, this year who had a somewhat remorseless contract killer in it with no country for old men how do you think that Anton, which by the way, Javier Bardem is, uh, is that character, Anton in No Country for Old Men, and he's in this movie too, a smaller part, but um, just a fun connection. But how do you feel like Vincent compares to Anton, like this cold killer? I mean, obviously Anton doesn't waste time. He's killing everybody in his path. I think, I think it's interesting to see that Vincent, like you said, almost enjoys the company as he's going along with this. He's He's spilling out his past. He talks about... You know, he mentions that his father was uh, didn't give him a very happy upbringing. He talks about his philosophy and why he views the how, how he views the world. I mean, a contract killer doesn't have to explain these things to people, but he it's like he almost wants just the companionship throughout the night. I think there's an interesting thing here, which is initially you had said like, "Oh, this guy's a sociopathic killer." We can say that about Anton Chigurh, that, that, that we know from covering the movie and just kind of what we've learned from it. He's creepy and scary. Vincent, aside from killing, is charming and kind of fun to be around. The conversations between Max and Vincent and like are pretty cool. The conversations between Vincent and anybody else in the movie, th- th- they are made menacing because you know what Vincent is. But if you didn't know what he was, he'd be just a fine gentleman the way that he's talking with Ida, Max's mom. You know, it, it almost seems as if a desire to improvise, I think you may have mentioned, uh, or uh, maybe he's done he's done this for a while. And so um, how do you make this job uh, fun for you? How do you how do you make this what you want to do with your time? I, I, I don't know, but uh, I, I'd say that he he probably could do this alone. He could rent a car or have a summer intern do it like you mentioned you could do that alone but it's uh almost better to do it his way which is with an unwitting partner maybe so by the way is jamie fox brian a supporting actor he gets he gets he gets nominated for best supporting actor a lot how is he not the main actor to everybody else am i, I am i off am i off base here i would say this is a co uh lead situation yeah. um yeah. i would say that Tom Cruise is the kind of guy that more or less demands a first billing, um, just oh, as part of for his, sure he's his first deal. build. So yeah, he's first build. Um, but I would but he, say that I would say that either of them, in my opinion, could have gotten supporting actor chops. As I don't think either of them stand out in this as a best leading actor in a movie sort of quality. Um, so, uh, but to answer your question before, um, I wanted to jump in on the, the no country piece. Um, I think that that is probably why the, the no country uh, comparison is probably why I don't think Tom Cruise is a sociopath. Right. Because yes. you get to see <laughs> what sociopaths, you know, like there's a, there's a very marked dis- difference between, between the two characters. And yeah, that's why I, it's just a job for him. And does he have a diminished respect for human life? A hundred percent, but it doesn't make any associate that. 
Interesting. It's the difference between Woody Harrelson and Javier in No Country. Like, that's like Woody Harrelson is the Tom Cruise character. Okay. Then that that's another fair point to bring up. Yeah. I, I had I had tinges of uh you know Jake Gyllenhaal's character from Nightcrawler as well. Sure. Like he's incredibly charming until until it's time. Um he's also incredibly ruthless. I spent a, I spent about two minutes after you had mentioned uh, Jason Statham in the beginning of this, <laughs> thinking, how cool would it be if they made this all one universe? Right. Like, that'd be awesome if that really was Transporter, Jason Statham, and that was like just his first appearance in a movie and, and right. that continues on to, you know, all be within the same stratosphere. Yeah. But swinging back around, Jamie Foxx has the most lines, the most camera time. He's the protagonist character. I mean... You can say that Tom Cruise is going to have a higher billing just based on clout, but still, this is Jamie. Jamie Fox is the lead actor, is he not? No, he is. To me, he is. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I, I think I, the story is more like more revolved around. And I, you mentioned it first, but I, it's the thing I took away what was uh, his change from how he starts to how he ends uh, is very much what this what this movie is about. Um, and so, so totally, he's my lead actor. And while Tom Cruise can be top billed, I think his character, who he is in the movie, is meant to support and be there to affect and change how who Max is and how Max operates. Um, this I, I would say this is Max's story, um, though it's very much driven by Vincent's job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the straw that stirs the drink for sure. Uh, Vincent is. Like, he makes things happen to Max, for sure. Uh, it's interesting, though. Michael Mann uh, told the, told the uh, crews that Vincent is a man who's able to get in and out of anywhere without anyone recognizing or remembering him. And uh, in order to prepare for the movie, Cruz would make FedEx deliveries on the ground in Los Angeles without anybody recognizing him. It's kind of a fun game to play, but there's something very striking about his presentation that stands out a ton. And... Um, if uh, blending in is what he's going for, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem like that's that's what's happening. I, I found myself often thinking that, like, this like, this guy kind of stands out. Maybe it's just because it's Tom Cruise. The first time I saw this movie, or the first time I really, you know, thought about this movie, my f I remember thinking, salt and pepper's here. Salt, salt, salt. <laughs> and the, in the world of Tom Cruise hair... On one end of the spectrum, you've got Legend, which we covered. He had great hair in that one. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Born in the Fourth, which we covered, and that is that's bad. Like that's <laughs> that's very bad. Tom Cruise hair. This is where does this on where is this on the spectrum, Dustin? I would say it definitely draws your eye. Um, it, for the first time viewer, it could probably to it could I, I think I agree with you that it could be a distraction. Right, I don't know it's Tom Cruise again. Another regular no-name actor wouldn't have this problem, but I, I, I did have this problem. I was kind of like, his face looks awfully young for that hair. It doesn't make sense. So, <laughs> anyway, um, we we had a uh, we had a group of guys at work. All of us were bald or balding, and it basically looked like we were three generations of the same person. <laughs> and we 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 used to uh, we uh, we used to play this game with customers called that hairstyle or bald and 
And I got to tell you, I would take this Tom Cruise hairstyle over bald. Like, it's not even a question. Oh, yeah. I actually think yeah. that this is what my hair would actually look like right now if I weren't bald. Because almost everything on the sides is gray now. Is Tom Cruise overdoing it as an actor in this movie? He does. In my opinion, he overdoes it a lot. It's a complaint I have about Tom Cruise. And um, I think he's doing it again here. Just throwing that out there. I think he had fun with the part. Like I just think that this was a this was a part that was fairly different. He rarely plays a bad guy, and That's true. I think he was I think he was enjoying himself, and I think that enjoyment of you know playing something fairly atypical that he doesn't normally do is why it seemed maybe contrived for you. I'd like to volley back and forth with moments where you think he's overdoing it. Or moments that maybe stand out as cool, but do they teeter on overdoing it? Um, I'll I'll give you I'll give you mine. I'll give you my first movement, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll volley it over to you, which is that like uh, the the discussion about Miles Davis and jazz, uh, like that scene, I felt like it was a little over the top, and I've actually before rewatching it for this had disliked all of that. Uh, especially Vincent's like apparently expert knowledge of this jazz great compared to Daniel, the one who owns a jazz bar. I thought that was over the top. Yeah. um, I think some of the the cab discussions uh, with the philosophy thing, I think Jamie Foxx is like, um, I think, I think the tone and stuff that he's setting, I think, I think there's an intensity in him that is not appropriate for the level of conversation that they're having. There's something about Vincent's character that is used to what he's doing, and he seems too wound up about it in talking to Max. Hmm. So it's it's almost like a well, you keep talking about like, hey, there's so many billions of people on the planet, it's just one life kind of thing. It's actually more convincing, more chilling. If you a subtlety is not Tom Cruise's thing. I don't think the the dialogue choices or the writers help in that aspect. I didn't much care for that either. Uh, but I, I'm going to I'm going to chalk that one up to whoever chose to write his lines as opposed to his performance over those lines. I think it's the lines I like least. Um, let's talk about another potential over the top thing before because I don't want to be mired down in it is uh, the busy scene in the club. He gets physical hand to hand combat with a couple guards. Um, one thing we know Tom Cruise can do well and very well. I thought that was awesome. But there's one time where, like, he stomps out of a guard that has fallen to the ground. Like, he stomps on him really hard. And the the primal viciousness in his face as he does it seems like, whoa, that doesn't seem like Vincent. Vincent seems like he would do the job and, like, move on. That he yes. wouldn't bring emotion to that particular move. Exactly. A high intensity. Yes. Yeah. He does this verbally. He does this with his body language. And he does these acting choices and action moments. These are all things that I, I mean, it's just a congruent thing across the board. He's an intense guy. You know, I mean, he, he jumps on Oprah's couch. He's an intense person. He's intensely happy. He's intensely charming to people. It is Tom Cruise. I don't think he can dial it down. That's Th- all. I'm this saying. was within a couple years of that jumping on Oprah's couch thing. Anyway, like yes. it was in yeah. that time period. I think that uh, if I, if I were going to make a rationale for the change in Vincent's behavior from you know smooth criminal to more vicious is I, if I were him I'd be pretty annoyed at this point uh, not just at at Max but also with myself for letting it get to this 
Um, I think that when he entered this whole situation with Max in the cab, you know, you have a guy who's supremely confident that he can control all variables of a situation. Dude falls out a window. That's, you know, strike one, you know, uh, he, you know, briefcase gets chucked over, you know, loses all of his intel, strike two. Uh, all of a sudden you've got, uh, you know, he's got to send uh, Max in to get the backup disc. I just, I feel like he's probably just really ticked off in general for a variety of different reasons at this point. And you know what, if you know how to hurt somebody and you're pissed off, then yeah, man, stomp on a knee. That's just, yeah. I think that's just the natural, you know, the escalation that happens is I want to get this over with. This is already more than I bargained for, whether it's my fault or otherwise, like this is, I'm done. So you know, I can he see took, that. He took, he took the gloves off at that point and said, this is, this isn't, you know, surgical any longer. Plus he was going to have to shoot this guy in front of a bunch of heavily armed bar- bodyguards anyway. So why do that with a bunch of bouncers at your back? You know, he neutralizes what he needs to for a clean exit. So some fun alternate castings here include Edward Norton has offered both lead roles of Max and Vincent. And Leonardo DiCaprio was considered for the role of Vincent, but he was too busy shooting The Aviator, which uh, came out this year. And uh, Colin Farrell was considered. Uh, I particularly dislike that choice. Uh, John Travolta. Was I like Colin Farrell for Fanning. I just don't think he's. Yeah, I don't want him in this movie. But um, well, that's that's fine too. <laughs> yeah. Adam Sandler was considered for Max, which at first I thought, uh, no, no, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but um, I did start chewing on. It. I was like, oh, you know what? Sometimes he does leave. Uh, maybe that maybe that nervous, stressed out thing could could maybe it's not as insane as I first thought it was. But um, Jimmy Fox is awesome in this. Yeah, Johnny Depp was also considered for the role of Max. Jabba Jabba, thinking about a limo service. <laughs> Jabba do limo. It's it's gonna be a club experience. <laughs> and this uh, is uh, like, does, this does, is, does, does, does Depp make you any happier in the role of Max? Uh no, I don't like that either. Although I, I see kind of him in the tourist, and I can see where that could be a feasible thing for him. I found Jamie Foxx too. They they Jamie Foxx was like the girl in the '90s rom com movie where you know oh if you put these glasses on we're gonna believe that you're a sheep <laughs> right. but as soon as you take the glasses off you're the hot girl that's that was what Jamie Foxx was to me in this film I'm like he's still he's in great shape he looks like a guy that could handle himself. And you're trying to play him off as this, you know, quiet. They put a very baggy shirt on him and a yeah, very baggy hoodie just, to try and to I'm try and hide really his amazing quiet, physique. You know, I'm I'm just yeah. this this happy go lucky cab driver with a business plan. That that was the least believable part of this to me. So I almost think you need someone a little bit more, you know, anemic <laughs> and a little bit a little bit more uh, sheepish. In the role than Jamie Foxx, they shoot or at least him, someone who kind of looks like they shoot him like behind it. a wheel so much and they shoot him at his face a lot. You, they do downplay the fact that this guy is in very good shape and and much they, much bigger than Tom Cruise. Like Jamie Foxx is enormous compared to Tom Cruise. Yeah, so. they should have called Jamie Sheep. Um, <laughs> so I think I think the thing is, uh, could Jamie Foxx do this role in the stardom that he has today? No, but as you mentioned, this was before Ray. 
Sure. Um, so I think it it might have made more sense to the us of 2004 than the us of right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, even in the, I think in in the description in the movie they say like, oh yeah, we're looking for like medium build. I think they do dress him down. That was something I was going to mention later, but you know they they dress him down well. Um, so I think there's. Uh, not movie magic here, but there's a, a, an effort to make him seem as if he's, uh, you know, a schlub, a regular guy. Yeah, I'm. I buy him more being a regular guy than I buy Mark Ruffalo being this like super tough cop guy. <laughs> do you want to talk about Mark Ruffalo as Fanning or as the character or the actor at all? Yeah, but what do you, What do you think about his arc in this movie? I feel like his arc is important, but is his character? Uh, you know, it's funny when, upon rewatching this, I didn't even remember Mark Ruffalo being in it or maybe I just didn't (laughs) know who Mark Ruffalo was back then. And I wasn't actually paying attention when he first shows up at that apartment until I hear him talk and like my head swung up and I was like, is that Mark Ruffalo? Cause I'm actually a big Mark Ruffalo fan now you know post now yeah yeah and and i was like oh my god that's mark ruffalo so a couple things that 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 coming back to this now as opposed to 2004 is i didn't know who jason statham was in 2004 Mm -hmm. i didn't know who mark ruffalo was in 2004 and i didn't know who javier bardem was in 2004 so watching this after the fact i'm like whoa well hidden gem is hidden gem is stacked in this film like (laughs) a lot it's heavy like there are so many A-list actors in this that weren't them, and now I'm like, oh man, they've got they got a deal on actors on this. I don't know what they had to pay those three, but man, I think it's you, Michael Mann. The I think inflation, work with Michael Mann. The inflation on what those salaries would look like if you had to make this movie again right, right. now it would be astronomical. Here's an interesting one that's going to hurt you, Fry. Val Kilmer was actually cast in this role that we're talking about right now as as Fanning. I and, like that. Uh, he that pulled out cool. before filming began due to conflicts, and Alexander took was taking more time to make, and so it didn't. It um, Alexander took Val Kilmer away from this a bad movie, pulling him out of this movie, and, um, and he was only in that movie I'm, for like five minutes too. Well, I guess it was more like twenty five minutes since everything in that movie was. Sh- you know, pulled out as long as it possibly could have been. But. I'm not sure how long Ruffalo was needed on sets for all these things. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. He's not I in it that me. much. Right. So, he, yeah. I think we're only talking about it at this length right now because it's Mark Ruffalo. Right. I, I think my only, my only qualification that I would say to Mark Ruffalo being in this movie is those, he, he actually may have the worst hair in the film. No, it's, it's important like to have his, both highlights look, and lowlights, and his hair, his and facial hair, like his whole look. Yeah, yeah his yeah. look was the worst. Just his wardrobe was by far the worst. Yeah. By far the worst. So now we talked about some preparation. Uh, Mark Ruffalo underwent rigorous weapons training. I'm not sure why. Uh, again, he's not in the movie that much, but uh, in order to, <laughs> an attempts to an attempts to feel like he matters too. <laughs> Um, he he really took it to heart and went into that. Tom Cruise did do a lot of this as well. Uh, in order to train for action sequences, he he fired live rounds. Uh, Michael Mann himself trained with various weapons with him, and uh, he uh, knew how to direct action film sequences in full effect from his other work and stuff in Mission Impossible. So, if you if you read about Tom Cruise in any in any of his movies, he takes everything to heart, and so. Um, you know, Michael Mann and Jamie Foxx are preparing for this uh, the car chase sequences by racing old cars at uh, Willow Springs Raceway in the Mojave Desert. It sounds like Michael Mann just wanted to hang out with Tom Cruise and, and uh, Jamie Foxx and do fun things. Go shoot guns and drive cars fast. 
Why not? I mean, hey, if that's part not? of your work budget, like I'm hundred percent doing that. If they said, Brian, we really need you to immerse yourself in this new book series coming out and you've got to learn how to shoot guns and race cars to do it. I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> sure. man you just, nailed, you just nailed like two <laughs> i was gonna say uh, add Twist one more on there to do some do, do some skiing at exotic locations right so, brian's trifecta <laughs> so. i'll shoot guns while i'm skiing man. Yeah, just so, so you know this ski this. slope ends at like uh, an artisan craft brewery that only produces uh one ton of <laughs> alcohol <laughs> and now you have a none Dustin. of their beers are yeah, so you have not in their whole menu consists of everything but IPAs. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Australian screenwriter Stuart Beatty was only 17 when he took a cab home from the Sydney airport and it was on that ride that he had this idea of a homicidal maniac sitting in the back of a cab with the driver nonchalantly entering a conversation with him and entrusting this passenger implicitly and then Beatty drafted his idea into a two-page treatment, and he enrolled in Oregon State University. He fleshed out his idea for his first screenplay, and he titled it The Last Domino. He put the script away for quite some time, and taking it out occasionally here and there to revise and to make rewrites uh, for following years, Frank Darabont, who we covered with The Shawshank Redemption and The Mist, um, wrote an adra- draft of the screenplay in 2000, and then uh, once Michael Mann was attached as the director... There's a substantial rewrite on this. It's interesting to see that this this work was done and conceived of by somebody so young and how it's one of those things that they kind of like pull it out every now and again and just kind of work on it. I thought that was an interesting part of the notion of how this thing got made. I, I think that's potentially why you had, had kind of, I don't want to harp on it too long, but it, it had to change. He's not a homicidal maniac. I would watch that movie too. I would totally watch the, the the movie of where it's more focused on uh, the conversation between uh, somebody truly unstable in the backseat and, you know, a, a, a mystery unraveling. Uh, th- that sounds great, too. But uh, hey, good for this guy to uh, focus on an idea and not have his script become island limo, something that's never going to happen. And just like it comes back to it. And I, I think, you know, I didn't pick this movie for us to cover because it's a favorite. I picked it because I had seen it a lot as a kid, and uh, it, like th- this, uh, this opportunity to to look at it again has really like shown like oh, there's a lot more going on here. Uh, so there is something. To, yeah, I was, I was surprised. I, I I honestly had forgotten many parts of this movie. I forgot far more than that Mark Ruffalo was in it. I forgot a lot of things, and so um, it it was it it was a fun one to study. I forgot um, it was Jada Pinkett Smith. I uh, when when I introduced the movie, I did not forget ago, that. Uh, I I said Tandy Newton. I thought it was Tandy Newton, uh, but I I I honestly enjoyed their scene so uh, so much in the beginning. I was kind of like. No, don't let her get out of the cab yet. I enjoy what's going on there. I want a different movie where Jamie Lee Fox, uh, sorry, sorry, where Jamie, Jamie, Jamie Lee, Lee Fox. Fox. <laughs> Jamie Lee <don't> know. Fox. <laughs> Please you guys that. just got so um, many different actors and actresses blended into one name. Right? I don't know why I did that. that was, you got Vivica Fox, strange. Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Foxx would be driving around Jada Pickett-Smith. Um... Sorry, the three names from the second actor with the very simple two names of the first actor got me messed up there. But um, I, I so was Thomas enjoying Hayden watch- Fox. <laughs> I was enjoying Jonathan watching them Taylor drive around. Sorry. I'm sorry, I liked watching Annie and Max drive around on their own. 
And it was short-lived, and I, I actually thought that chemistry was good. And what you saying. get is a little taste of that exact thing that, that Max wants is, by the time you're done with island limos, you don't want to get out of the limo. And she didn't. didn't want to get out of the car. And uh, I, you know, I think there's, uh, aside from the main plot of this movie, that little shared connection at the beginning, uh, and, and Jamie Foxx's acting of a guy who just, in a world of fleeting moments... When like he just kind of had a connection with this uh, smoke show of a ride, a ride, a fare that he like reverses in the airport lot to go and get. Um, like small talk can turn into nothing, and ninety nine percent of the time it turns into nothing. But it, she came back and knocked on his window. He's sitting there like kicking himself. He's scoffing and uh, exhaling. Like man, why didn't I do that? like that? It's it's the uh, it's great, and I think it's just enough of a connection to make that scene matter later. Uh, without it, it's it's a rescue. It's not a, it's not like a rescue for love. It's a rescue for connection. It's it was all we needed in terms of like romanticism. It was good. This movie, um, going back to the creation though, it sat on the DreamWorks development books for three years, and it was initially um, passed through a couple of different directors. And Russell Crowe was interested in playing Vincent as a hitman. And the project started generating momentum at that point. And Crow uh, brought Michael Mann on board. And so it could have easily been Crow here uh, on this project. And Mann went to Tom Cruise later with the idea of playing the hitman. Um, Crow had another project uh, called Eucalyptus with Nicole Kidman. That didn't work out so well for him. He probably should have stuck it in, stuck in here. But um, it's interesting we almost didn't have Cruz. We almost had Russell Crowe instead. Really, like, close. Do you think casting Tom Cruise here is part of the draw for why? Because I didn't know it was as successful as it was until you read the numbers earlier. Yeah, if Tom Cruise is in a movie, people just show up. I, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Yeah, I think it was likely a fun a fun choice for him, too. I don't know if I love the idea of Russell Crowe doing it, but uh, I, I'm normally not disappointed with him. So that could have been fun. Yeah, and Michael Mann was hired. Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg were all offered chances at directing this movie. And Lee showed interest in passing on the offer. Uh, but uh, it's interesting, though. Uh, Michael Mann, also not necessarily the first choice. Tom Cruise, not the first choice. This project was nobody's first choice. It doesn't feel... I'm wondering why it was so passed over. I feel like... with. I feel like there's I feel like there's something interesting here, but maybe at a first glance it felt like what I thought it was too. It felt like a Jason Statham movie when you read the synopsis of just, you know, Hitman in the back of the car overtakes this cab driver and it's one crazy night. Like that sounds like a B action movie, in fairness, and maybe that's why it wasn't taken more seriously by more of these people. I think that this movie falls into one of those wonderful categories that I love most where you see something, you Either do or you either you hear nothing about it because people just didn't or B, you hear bad things because people said bad things without having seen it. And and this gets to, you know, go in that holster of movies. You can be like, hey, let's watch this. And and you're more than likely going to get a wow. Thanks for you know recommending this. It was a lot better than I thought it would be, which I, I live on that. So I, I think that you can have movies that fall under the radar uh, after the fact, which I, I can't, I don't think you can really call this as under the radar during that time because it was 
bumped up next to the aviator so it made enough money it got enough hype it got enough i guess recognition at the time but i do think this got just forgotten about nearly immediately after that year ended yeah yeah i think so too and maybe maybe just like i said fox's own other performances covered over it i don't know and and michael mann said that that resonated with him because his own father was a cab driver and when Max and Vincent are driving to Club Fever, there's a coyote that crosses the road in front of them. I, I thought that they made a real big moment out of that. And I didn't I didn't get what that was. And upon digging into this further, apparently American Navajos have an omen that uh, it, it's considered to be like a taboo. If you see a coyote crossing your path, you should turn back on your journey uh, because something terrible will happen to you. Audio Slave was playing. It was a very profound, big moment in the movie. I don't know that I got it the first time, and without studying it, I don't think I would have gotten it this time either. Am I dense, or did that just connect home for everybody else? Uh, I think it was uh, just an opportunity to be artistic. I, th- I think that's kind of all all it all it was. Uh, it is uh, in a in a movie with uh, a cool soundtrack, a soundtrack that I laud, and I don't always laud uh, compilation soundtracks. They come back to that Audio Slave song twice, um, which is the only song they do that with. Um, I just think it was, uh, it's a known thing uh, in LA that there's coyotes about like that's, and, uh, particularly late at night. I think sometimes you've asked before, like, does this feel like a Boston movie? Does this feel like a New York movie? Well, this feels like an LA movie. It does. And the empty streets, um, a lot of the top down driving scenes, and then just like, Hey, there's a coyote in the road and it being like a moment of introspection for them both. I, I don't know if it's after the third or before the third or after the fourth. I guess it'd have to be after the third, but sometime in between those two is when that happens. And I, I think it was just uh, an odd, in this case, moment of silence when they're both in the car and not talking, because usually they are talking to one another, either through panic from Max or waxing philosophical from Vincent, that, that this was just a, a moment where, okay, they're catching their breath before the next thing happens. Is this the thing before jamie fox ends up driving the car at reckless speeds and then flipping the car is this the thing that is this the light switch going off has he found his wolf inside of him maybe am i getting things out of order i okay so it's in the right order which just it's the proximity in time Uh, i think that this is happening after after they leave club fever so yeah he's got all the like he's he's like hit this new level of swagger that he's never had before yeah. Um, so I, I believe that we are in between four and five. I don't think it happens immediately. I think there's a little there's a little bit of time, not much. I think that's that's the right location, though. Yeah, I, I found myself thinking it's a really big, creative, big, symbolic moment. And this movie doesn't do that anywhere else. And both with the soundtrack and with that, I found myself going like, do I like this? Is it out of character for the movie or is it so important? Like, this is the moment where he finds his wolf inside of him. Or is it just, you know, like, hey, bad things are about to happen. And I, I find myself unsure of what to do with this moment. Right, and I- it may even affect how I feel about this movie. But I'm not sure I've rested down on whether I like this move or not. I, I think I think this is it. I know that it's not it's not imperative we get it right. But I had written down earlier that the the song combo moving from Audio Slave, you know, Chris Cornell's awesome vocals on Shadow on the Sun. Good to, vocals, by the way. To uh, the Korean mix of Ready Steady Go by Paul Oakenfold inside the club. So the first time you hear that song, which is I believe when you see. It's when you see the coyote 
is before they go into Club Fever because the soundtrack and the way the movie goes is Audio Slave directly into Paul Oakenfold. Then they revisit the Audio Slave song after they leave Fever. That's not when the Coyote happens. It goes Coyote, Club Fever, Fourth Target, revisit the song, driving super fast into the car crash. So it's, it's close. Huh. But Interesting. That's the order. Okay. So he's about to find his wolf then. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. Well, speaking um, of finding his wolf, I, the, you, I know you mentioned it before, but the scene with uh, Javier Bardem, whose name is Felix, and he's got the the double Mexican hyphenated last name, uh, which I cannot remember right now, but that scene where he really does find his spine, like you mentioned, is such a huge payoff. After watching this meek character for an hour, then I think what you said, he says something like, you need to tell that guy behind me to put his gun away before I take it from him and beat his ass with it. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, he stumbles before that point for sure. But huge yeah. payoff to see him because he's almost embodying Vincent. He's even using some of his lines. It's very, very cool to see that. It's a man apparently is this very meticulous guy who has people do so many takes in the movie, the massive number of takes apparently. And uh, Mark Ruffalo said that the scene where Fanny first discovers. Um, Ramon's disappearance and proceeds to call uh, the other detectives in. Uh, Man insisted on 80 takes for Ruffalo, uh, saying that you just you begin to lose it at that point. And um, Fox confirmed that uh, he really did do a lot of takes on that one. And he's like, that that hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Um, it, it's interesting. We've sometimes seen people like Clint Eastwood as a director who like can do it so quickly, and then there's the converse, like where like somebody like Kubrick. Or man does it so many times. I have wondered, like he's clearly going to get what he wants out of this, but um, it, it, I find it very compelling when somebody um, is that controlled, where they're not necessarily letting these big good actors find the character and to trust them. I find it, I find it one of those. I, it seems torturous to be a director who's quite like, no, do it again eighty times. Well, especially for something that really matters very little to the exactly. success of this movie. Exactly. So. Um, well, and he was lucky, though. He was lucky with uh, Tom Cruise's practice with the firearms. He was able to get those five shots when he takes down the two guys who, who stick up, who, who take the money from, uh, and the bag from Jamie Foxx. Uh, he pulls his pistol out and gets five shots in 1.4 seconds which beats the projected time of 1.6 seconds they were supposed to shoot it in. So uh, all of Tom Cruise's intensity and training paid off with like, look, all right, you, you want to see how this is done? Bam, 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 bam. It was insane. And Fry, what do you think about the Michael Mann as a director here? Like, this is totally in his wheelhouse. This is like, you know, Thief, Heat, Insider. Like, this is, you know, Miami Vice. Like, these are all things that Michael Mann has done up to this point that makes sense. Not so much Last of the Mohicans, but I mean... Um, you know, do you like, do you like this? This just feels like straight down the line. Like if you like Michael Mann, this is, this is going to make you happy. I like uh, his use of darkness in his films. Like they're typically grittier films. And I, I like that, especially from like a, you know, heist law assassin, what, you know, whatever you want to, to clap to it. So yeah, I, I would say I'm a fan. Um, I don't think it's something that you could, I don't know if I would go on like a Michael Mann, you know, run where all I do is just marathon his films, but uh, I, I'm never like, oh, it's a Michael Mann film. I'm not going to see it. 
and I don't they're think he's like, they're kind of like slower paced. All of those movies that I just named, he, like, yeah, he he does. None do... of them are roller coaster rides. Dustin said this movie finishes out kind of exciting, but it's like an hour and forty minutes before. I, I don't know. I I'm not so sure it is like it never hits that high pace. I'd agree with that. Um, it's just it's more you know. You're right. I mean, this, the heat is definitely a slow burn. This one was a slow burn. What do you say, guys? What do you, why don't we hand out some awards here? Let's go. Sounds great. All right. Dustin, who's your MVP? I had already said that I felt like this was Jamie Foxx's. This is Max's story. And I think Jamie Foxx, aside from just the trick of take the glasses off and she's hot, uh, I think he, <laughs> he plays uh, the meek character well. Uh, he plays the interaction with annie well he plays the fear of vincent and then coming around into who he is eventually um he even holds a gun like he's never held a gun before which for max is true so i i i think he's my mvp here yeah uh it's a great choice brian mvp i think that i would probably give it to the director on this one i love the story behind this film's creation and either either this the the director with Michael Mann or the or the scriptwriter, um, it's it's a cool idea. I, I really got behind it. I, I remember thinking at the time, this is a really you know odd way of of making a film like this, and I think that's where it it gives its opportunities for the artistic shots that you see from Michael Mann. So it's a it's a very symbiotic relationship that really benefited behind the camera instead of in front of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Dustin on this one. I'm going to go with Jamie Foxx. I think 2004 was a very good year for Jamie Foxx and uh, as an actor. Um, he, he does, he do, I think he does a lot of the heavy lifting for the experience of this movie. Um, and I think if you get somebody who's not as good at it as he is, the movie's significantly worse for it. Anyway, best supporting actor, Dustin. This almost doesn't feel right, but I'm going to go with Tom Cruise here to be first build and be best supporting. Yeah, he's over the top, uh, but I think it's uh, a real treat to see him not do his normal thing. I think if you were to find this on a streaming service, you're going to see a picture of Tom Cruise's face with his gray hair and his stubbly beard, and you're going to say, that's odd, and it might just make you click on it. Okay, yeah, Brian, best supporting. I went with Tom Cruise on this one, too, uh, just because it was so off his kind of normal path being a villain and, you know, it's not that he can't, you know, play that smooth criminal or anything. It's just that uh, you rarely get to see it in this way. He usually likes to wear the white hat in a different way instead of a gray suit. So, yeah, I'm going with Tom. Yeah, I'm I'm going with Jada Pickett Smith on this one. She uh, her chemistry in that cab like was was really good, and uh, I thought that she played her part so well. So, uh, I wish I wish she had been in in the movie more. Hidden gem, Dustin. During that scene. Where, uh, where Jada Pinkett Smith and, and Jamie Foxx are talking about like the music. She says, will you turn that up? He goes, oh, you're a f- fan of the classics. She's like, yeah. They're playing this kind of like R&B blues song, kind of an old, old, older sounding song. Well, that song isn't old. It was recorded two years prior. It is just using the vocals of a very old singer named Richie Havens, who was the opening act of Woodstock. So I thought it was <laughs> very fun that they were like, oh, you like the classic songs, don't you? It's like this song came out on the album like while you're shooting it. It's not a classic song. So that's my hidden gem. Yeah, that's uh, nice. Uh, Brian, hidden gem. Uh, I did go with Jason Statham just because it, it he, he occupied my brain 
so much during this rewatch for this podcast for the reasons I told you already. I was like, yeah. And even his attitude when he bumps into Tom Cruise accidentally winks, even his attitude. I'm like, I was a very transporter of him. Like, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I can see it. Mine's going to be Bruce McGill, the guy who plays uh, Pedrosa. I, I, he has a gruffness that I thought was really good for the role. Is Pedrosa um, the FBI agent? Yeah. Okay, that's, 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 sorry, just Pedrosa didn't ring out to me, but that's what I thought it was. Yeah. I, lo- I love him in Legend of Bagger Vance. Yeah. I, I feel like I like him a lot. Like, he yeah, gets a small role and he, something's memorable about he's him. He's a fun you know? guy. I mean, yeah. Recast, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, Dustin, who would it be? I had a feeling they wanted. Now you talked about who they actually could have cast, but I would have loved uh, uh, Ray Fanning's role to be a Latino role. I think they wanted it to be. I think they tried to make him look like he was. So I think they should have gone. Doesn't with, work for him. That's for sure. <laughs> it doesn't work for him. They must have just seen the last name. They didn't know him yet. Like Rufalo, Rufalo. Okay, let's go with this guy. Um, so uh, I think Michael Pena would have been awesome. Uh, as as Fanning here, if his I mean I think we need to change Fanning's character regardless. But I would have liked him. Um, I think he played a, a cool role right around this time in the Wahlberg movie Shooter, uh, and I think mm. this uh, that this probably shooting at the same. He was time, actually an FBI I, agent in that. There we go. So I, I think Michael Pena in this would be fun. It's it's a pretty safe change. I think I think that that role's ripe for the picking. Brian, where are you going for your recast? Uh, I'm going with Jamie Foxx. I really do think that he's, yeah, like, I just, I have a good time with it. Um, uh, I, I'd like to see a guy like Chiwetel Ejiofor play this role because cool. I feel like he is, like, he's played, you know, BA roles. He's been, you know, that boss guy. But I think he also maybe plays a, a little meeker easier too. So, or, or maybe it's the, that he, you know, he can have that look of, you know, maybe a nerdier, quieter guy, but then also I've seen him bring it. And because he's had both those sets of work, I can see the, the character change move a little more smoothly because really with, with uh, Jamie Foxx's action movie work, I mean, you know, I'm picturing things like uh, uh, the kingdom and stuff where I'm just like, I, I can't buy him this meek. My recast is going to be Tom Cruise, um, and I had a hard time picking between this. I was I was going between De Niro and Walken. I think you should have an older actor doing this. I think you should have somebody who's seen the world and is hardened by the world around them, and um, has this kind of nihilistic kind of view on things. And so I I think I want Walken here, but this is I went a whole another direction with this I don't think I get as many tickets sold Tom Cruise is clearly a better choice if you want to sell tickets but I think the role would do better with somebody like that I think neither Walken nor uh, De Niro could do the club scene or the chasing the running because Tom Cruise is an animal when it comes to aerobic exercise and movement he is he is but could you yeah but could you get an older guy that is still spry I don't know. Nobody runs like Tom Cruise on camera. Like a no. minority report, man. Everybody Again, runs. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I don't know. I just I felt like... Uh, it, it, yeah. I like your idea, though. Because I, 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 thinking of Walken as menacing in that way could be a lot of fun. I think it could turn on the charm in a very organic way, too. I love I, I think Seven it, Psychopaths. 
I think it's potentially just a different movie. Yet have Walken as an aging assassin and just not have him in this movie. I'd watch it. I promise you. Yeah. All right. So uh, best shot, Dustin. This was actually hard. Uh, I was I was trying to think of um, what stands out on a rewatch of a movie. I've seen a whole bunch. And I'm going to go with um, the dark shots inside the skyscraper at the end of the movie with the L.A. skyline behind it. Um, and you have some music, but you also have some silence so that you can hear Jada Pinkett Smith's Annie like breathing hard and like the sound of her um, stockings against the floor. Like I thought that was like very cinematically like taking and uh, but like I think the focus on the faces and with the skyline in the background was was really cool. Something I didn't remember from my earlier watches. This movie's nominated for its cinematography. I believe it flexes itself in that part of the movie too. So Brian, what about you? Uh, my best shot is the the coyote scene. Um, I actually was holding off on bringing up Audio Slave because it's like I you know I I have grown to appreciate you know i was already a Soundgarden fan when this came out and audio slave was on their first album so i uh yeah it's 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 probably my favorite part of the movie it's just that you know with the city flashing by and, and you know the soundtrack so yeah i i'm i'm thinking i'm gonna go with where dustin was i don't like the dark filming of this movie as much as i think critics and people liked it uh I think it actually made me have a hard time putting my arms around it at first, but upon revisiting it, there's parts of it that are to be appreciated. So there's some technical things about it I do like. But on the other hand, aesthetically, I felt like man's pace of this movie paired with that that dark, those filters and things like that. There was something that made me have a hard time coming to this movie initially as a casual viewer. And... um I think some of that has to go with it too. So maybe it just wasn't a very sophisticated movie watcher in 2004, but I can see, I can at least appreciate it more now. But, but the tower shots as well, like when Annie's like with the, the green screen city behind them. Oh, really? That, that was yours too? Oh, cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, best scene, Dustin. Uh, it wasn't this when I was growing up, but it is now. It's, it's when Max makes his turn. It's when he, uh, finds his spine, like you said, and he's talking to Felix, the maybe the most dangerous man in L.A. Um, and, and he's he's pulling lines. He uh, he even I think he ends that conversation with something like uh, like in six years. Have I ever let you down? Like he's just he's he's improvising. And I really don't want to focus on that. The, the, the stuff from jazz earlier, but the, what he turns into is pretty cool. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have an entire scene devoted to it. So that's mine. Yeah. Brian, best scene. Um, I like the chase. Uh, basically everything from Jamie Foxx getting uh, Jada to you know running down through the Metro, the cat and mouse game there. I think that whole chase scene was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm going to go with the flipping of the car. Um, when, when Jamie Foxx has had it and he might even be throwing his own life on the line, but his own life's probably going to get taken from him anyway. So it's the moment of throwing caution to the wind. I'm going to flip my cap, throw this thing on its head. I threw your briefcase over. That wasn't enough. You know, I'm, I'm, this is, this is an escalation again of like, I am taking back control and it's kind of a triumphant moment works out for him in the end. 
and uh, to me, it's a it's a it's a good film scene too. It's funny they they got it in one take, but then they flipped three more cars, uh, kind of <laughs> needlessly anyway, and they ended up keeping the first take. Kind of funny. It's fun. That's my that, that's my favorite. I was gonna say Not Michael Mann. Did, it's a serious movie, but I'll be honest with you. I think like reading some of these things beyond Michael Mann making people do things over and over and over again, it did make me sit there and go like it's like. It's like, it sounds like he's having a lot of fun hanging out with his actors in this movie. It's hmm. like, I think that's pretty good, but we have three more cars to flip. So let's flip them. <laughs> we talked a lot about wardrobe in this one. Dustin, best wardrobe. Make a moment. I think it's important to recognize a good dressing down, which is what they do with Jamie Foxx. He's wearing a T-shirt that's made out of a, a, a material underneath a, a baggy hoodie. Uh, the it's, it's kind of a crossed V-neck. If you look back at it, it almost looks like he's wearing two V-necks. Uh, it's it looks like a cheap shirt that like you might find at the donation center, uh, and like it's makes sense. You think of him eating that messy sandwich, he probably comes home and, like it's stained a little bit. Um, I think the gold standard for dressing down a beautiful actress is Charlize Theron and Monster, but this dressing down like to make him seem just like a meek guy, it was perfect. So that's that's my take on best wardrobe here. Yeah, Brian, best wardrobe. I mean, it's got to be the gray suit, like that. The monochromatic. I, I, I don't yeah. think I've ever seen like the hair match the suit better than it did in this. And I felt like it was like all of it was just so purpose driven. Like I, and it's it's a weird color combo. Like it's not you can't even say like black hat versus white hat. You've just got this like silver fox thing going on. I don't even know what, how to describe it. I just, it was weird. There's something and, very wolf-like about and it. And here, it's it's super unique. Like, this doesn't, I, I can't point to any other movie I've seen where I'm like, yep, just like this other thing. No, I mean, they did something different. I'm with you on the suit, by the way. I mean, uh, I, I question the hair choice. I mean, but um, given that that was the choice they made, the suit was very part of it. And so like the slightly darker gray tie with the all monochrome gray suit. Um, something about hitmen is romanticized. I think, I think if you did want to be a hitman, like when I, when I make contract kills, I try and blend mm -hmm. in a little bit more. So, I yeah. mean, but I mean, th there's no way this man is blending in uh, like this. I mean, it, it, it's not just because he's Tom Cruise. I mean, he's very sharply dressed. I mean, it's a very nice custom. That's not a Macy's suit. It fits him perfectly. And so to Brian's point, like, this man has no color. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a coldness to him. There, it's very wolf-like. He's very gray. And like, I mean, I, I felt like there's so many things about that that personified his character. And that's what, I think this movie is really good for wardrobe. I think all three of the major main characters with Jada Pickett-Smith, Jimmy Fox, and um, Tom Cruise, I feel, I felt like they nailed it. The wardrobe says so much about each of the characters. I think they did nail it. And I want to say I specifically chose mine because I had a feeling one of you had to choose the suit. It had to be. Had yeah. To be. Yeah. Sorry. Change one thing, Dustin. I think we can always do with a little less of the tired trope between the conflict between local police and federal authorities. They're going to come in and take all our stuff. I like where you're going with this. That doesn't yes. matter at all to this movie. I'd love the idea for the detective role here to matter more, fanning mattering more, uh, to not just revealing story arc to the audience, but maybe like adding to the ultimate success of Max over Vincent somehow. Um, so I don't even know. I think we need the FBI in this at all, which uh, fortunately takes away you know your hidden gem here. But I, I just think uh, 
for for the rest of the things this movie does well. Uh, it was unneeded uh, to to have that. And in general, I like to call out that that trope's overused. So it's a great choice there, uh, Brian. Change one thing. Uh, it, dr- it dr- seriously drives me insane. I want to know what happens after. I want to know: Do they go into hiding? Do they work it all out with the cops? Is Mark Ruffalo dead? I, I the question marks I yeah, have at the end dead. of this movie is just just drives me insane. He didn't triple tap him like everybody else. He was in a hurry. He gave him two. One of them was clearly mm-hmm. in the shoulder because that's what happens in movies. So you don't know Mark Ruffalo. He could have been wearing body armor. You don't know. So the, right. the amount of I don't know what happened at the end of this movie after the fact, like is Jada, Pink, is Jada Pinkett's character Annie high enough that she can be like, no, this guy's one of the good guys. He saved my life. He didn't do anything. Or is the FBI just going to you know roast him? You know, I don't. Did someone end up? finding him on the subway did he get away is he actually dead you know well, that's the, the irony because get... he said it earlier he's like somebody rode around the subway and they never even noticed he was like dead you know i mean like i don't like this town because of like you know and and ironically he becomes that guy on the train i mean and, yeah I, and, and that's all fine except that there are too many other questions like you can have that artistic irony at the end of the film but you can't leave me hanging on everything else and they did that too with the city. It's like, I hate this city. It's all sprawled out. And they, they, that's how they depicted it. It wasn't a very charming city with how they depicted it. it. Like, I mean, everything that Cruz said in that cab earlier on, like when he came in, came to be true. So interesting. Yeah. Fry always wants more. That's always, that's always his answer. Give, give me a quick rundown of what, you know, there's, there's a way to do it quickly, but you got to give me more than here's my effed up little mini hoodie over your shoulders we're going to leave everything unresolved. Like, does she go and get the bad guy after this because they left one alive? So I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Was Fanning able to survive his gunshot wound? He can no longer keep up with the tail, but his, uh, his he's better used right. in like coming up with some extra evidence that in the end, Annie uses he did get for a, the trial the next he day. He gets all the witnesses. Which isn't so going to start that day. But feasibly, like, the bad guy did. does win like, the, this and doesn't have to pay this guy because he's dead. So I, I, I don't know. I just, I, there, there are too many hats on the ground at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my change one thing is going to be very similar to Justin's actually. I, I felt like the entire detective fanning line was unneeded. I just didn't think any of the police side of the story was even necessary. They go back and think about it, remove all of it. Bruce McGill. Mm-hmm. I liked him. He's my, he's my hidden gem, but I don't think you need the police in this one. Uh, I, I would say the only, only, only caveat to that isn't part of that police story arc. It's part of uh, the the po- the police stop after. Oh no! When they over. pull when they pull them over, and those are like the no name policemen, like investigating them. That was good. That has more impact on the enjoyment of the movie than the entire arc of the detective. The investigators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. the investigators. Not not helpful. Don't need it. Don't need it. Yep. Um, best quote, Dustin. If you open that trunk, they go inside during the police stop that's that is that's a good choice by the way yeah. I, I it's a short one there's actually there's a lot of quotes from this one i liked uh and a lot of quotes i didn't but uh th- that one uh, is whispered to uh max from the back seat and i thought like that is he's being serious it's not just about like some thugs in an alleyway i'm gonna i'm gonna ice these two cops if you don't fix this right now and it's luck that gets them and out he already that knows situation. that he cares about that stuff too because you know mm-hmm. yeah so brian how about you, man? You killed him. Now I shot him. The bullets in the fall killed him. <laughs> That's pretty good. 
That is good. <laughs> I, I love that one. That's a good one. Why didn't you just kill me and get another cab driver? Because you're good. We're in this together. Fates intertwined. Cosmic coincidence. Oh, I would have thought you would have pegged that as one of those over-the-top moments. Like to, to It make. was. It, it, it kind of was. It was, uh, again, subtlety um, was thrown out the window here. But um, I, I felt like... I felt like um, it's one of those things I'm just going to remember from this movie. And like I said, it's uh, I, not everything I remember from it's going to be good or bad, but just something just that was so cruise. I don't know. <laughs> it's why it's why it's why people paid a hundred million. Sorry, it's why people uh, showed up to the theaters to a hundred million dollars for, for moments like that. I guess so. Um, I think, by the way, that stuff works in a lot of other movies. It might be the reason we're kind of dogging it in this movie is because it's worked in other stuff and it just didn't reach that same bar in this one. Maybe. Yeah. All right. It's time, it's time to rate this movie on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. Dustin, what would you rate collateral? I kind of like going first here because you had said to me, like this was my dealer's choice and I presented this to y'all. So I kind of wanted to say like, is this movie that I liked as a kid a good movie? I, and that's what I'm hoping to get from y'all is kind of a decision on a number scale. For me, after reevaluating, listening to you guys, and uh, there were, there was a, a great like shared resource that you sent to me, Russell, where um, there was a, a description about how our protagonist needs the antagonist to grow. And the first hour of the movie is learning, and the second hour of the movie is in action. And I thought, that's really cool. And it's something I didn't get as a kid, but I definitely get now. Even still, I think we've mentioned several shortcomings. The soundtrack is incredible, but they do one of my cardinal sins, which is uh, using a version of Johann Sebastian Bach's Air. Uh, you should never do that. That being said, this is a four-star movie for me. I still think it's a lot of fun, but it's got some flaws. Yeah. Brian, how about you? I went three-star on this one, not because I think it's bad by any Mark, I, I think this is actually a very entertaining movie. I like the fact that there are artistic flourishes that make it not just an action movie. Uh, I don't mind the slow burn at all. I criticize the ending heavily, but um, I, I find this to be a really entertaining movie, and I, I think it's got some rewatchability to it as well. Yeah, it does have rewatchability, and that's what's picked it up for me. I'm I'm have now joined you in the three club. I I quite honestly was not. Excited to come back to this one when Dustin picked this. I was kind of like, um, I, I, I did not appreciate it at a first time view. I, it was probably slower than I wanted, and um, I did not necessarily get all the nuances and the transformation of what was going on with Max's character. So um, obviously, the flaws were apparent to me, and I still think some of my criticism showed through at the time. I remember leaving at the time thinking. Uh, was Cruz the right guy for this? And all you know, I mean, I had a lot of hard takeaways the first time. So anytime the first response was that negative for me, I, I, I um, I think that it's it's come up a lot. Three is an above average movie, so there's not three. Three is not a bad rating, so I'm giving it a three. But that's not that's not that seems low for our show. And I, no, I, I hear. Well, it, I think it's just in a vacuum of of this year. This year we've done. Some really incredible movies this year, and in a vacuum, you know, the three looks bad. But I've been fighting for the three as a good rating, you know, really since I started doing this. It's a very watchable film. If I give it a two, you're two. talking about below average. That's, below average. That's fine. So you know, don't 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 poo poo on a three. I don't poo poo on a three. We I don't think, aim to I cover think... like one star movies or 
two star movies. So three, like you said, feels low, but it's not. I, like, I, it's, it's not a diss. I would not have given Valentine's Day a single star. <laughs> I would have gone half star. Stars. You would you would have broken your half star rule and gone right, to the half right, star. Yeah. I, I don't think you could have. I, I, what it, what it, yeah. <laughs> so I think whatever this the is lowest. A, yeah, a three star movie for me if I didn't grow up with it. And it's not it's sure. it's not even because I uh, I selected it. It was just something that like I think if this were introduced to me, I would probably be left with sort of like I think what you had when you left the theater, Russell, which was like, what was this? Was this right? Like it it, it takes a monumental effort uh, to to come out of the doldrums. So when you said like you were raising it, and you raised it two or three. I'm like that's about as good as I can maybe expect. Yeah, and hey, thanks thanks for getting me to study this movie because I, I'd be honest with you, I'd forgotten many things about this movie i just knew that i had seen it and that i didn't love it and that um like if somebody somebody's like hey did you see collateral i'd be like i did and i don't really have much to add on that <laughs> not, <laughs> that is a movie that i saw and it's a very short podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> so thank you dustin for challenging me to come back and actually investigate this there was something of substance there was meat on the sandwich all right so, so uh do you want to help me pick a movie for next time let's do it all right I got three options to share for you. Casablanca from 1942. A cynical expatriate American cafe owner struggles to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape the Nazis in French Morocco. Option two, From Here to Eternity from 1953. At a U.S. base in 1941, Hawaii, a private is cruelly punished for not boxing on his unit's team while his commanding officer's wife and top aide begin a tentative affair. And option three, A Bridge Too Far from 1977. Operation Market Garden, September 1944, the Allies attempt to capture several strategically important bridges in the Netherlands in hopes of breaking the German lines. Dustin, what'll it be? This is an easy choice. Uh, This podcast, it's time to do Casablanca. Wow. Brian said we've had a good year, and it has been a good year. It's about to get even better. So Casablanca it is. Thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us, so we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We love comments on social media, so like us on Facebook. Follow us at Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. We're on Instagram. We're anywhere the internet is that you search for us anyway. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Go. Sleep badly. Any questions, hesitate to call.